the simplest commercial baking resource. Brought to you by Bakerpedia and hosted by Mark Florka. With 45 years of industry experience, Mark knows the ins and outs of baking. He is Bakerpedia's community forum manager and baking instructor. He's here to share knowledge and help you grow connections. You're listening to the Baked In Science Podcast. Hi, Mark. Hello, Chef. How are you? Call me Jimmy. <laughs> I'm Grant. I'm very well. In Ireland, you're either you're either a bread baker or a confectioner. Was one mm-hmm. or the other. And a confectioner didn't just mean sugar or a chocolate confectioner. You, yeah. you had to be jack of all trades. You had to be able to mix cakes, bake cakes, finish cakes. Exactly. Do yeah. Do work, and so it was kind of a mixed bag of everything. I used to have my own business, which I closed about three years ago. I spent 38 years in business. At one stage, I had 57 people working for me. Wow. And Now I just have myself to worry about. I have, a, I have a small private consultancy company where I teach abroad. I teach online. I write books through the company as well. Like that's a, that's another business, and I have a permanent job with the government now. So I'm a civil servant uh, lecturer in the in the national university. Excellent. Um, so I teach two days a week. Been off almost for three weeks for Easter. So I start back again tomorrow. So wow, today, today is a good day. Oh, perfect! Excellent. <laughs> Welcome everybody to another podcast,、uh, Baked in Science. I'm your host, Mark Florka, and I have a very illustrious guest with me here today, Kent Millefalche, to Chef Jimmy Griffin. Jimmy, please introduce yourself a little bit. Tell us who you are. Mark, so nice to meet you face to face after all these months. And your pronunciation of Kedmi Lafalche, which is a hundred thousand welcomes in Irish, it was. Most excellent. Thank you Thank very you. much.、Yeah. So my name is Jimmy Griffin, and I'm a sixth generation baker. So our family, I can trace my roots back to the late 1700s. Tom Griffin, he was the first guy, and he would have been a journeyman baker. So he would travel to wherever there was work. So if you ever read about the history of bakers, a lot of them, the guys that didn't have their own businesses, for instance, they worked for a master. But they normally resided in the bakery, and in a climate like we have in Ireland, where it's wet and rainy and cold and horrible, it was ideal because they normally slept on bags of flour beside the oven. So at least they were warm. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. They had warm、uh, at night, and they were able to sleep, and they they got up for their work. But、uh, then in the summers, when you know the weather would be better, there'd be a certain amount of tourism. We were, of course, an occupied country. We're occupied by the British for、uh, hundreds of years. But we get a lot of tourists, and some of the smaller satellite towns then would open up, and you know they'd have people coming. And there was, believe it or not, tourism back then. So small bakeries would open up to service, you know, the food needs in in these locations, and the bakers would travel to where the work was. They were known as journeyman bakers. Yep.、Mm-hmm. So they journeyed around, and they literally had their trade in their hands and in their head and in their hearts, and that's what they were. So then his son was a man named John Griffin. He would have been John Griffin Senior, and himself and his son John Griffin Junior set up a bakery in the mid to late eighteen hundreds in Galway, and actually formed a company in eighteen seventy six. So they were a registered company in eighteen seventy six, and they mainly produced bread. 
Now, as I mentioned earlier, we were an occupied country at the time Ireland was occupied by British. Our town was a garrison town, so we had barracks, we had an army barracks, and we also had a strategic naval port. So the bowel, Mr. Griffin, got loads of contracts. So he used to supply the barracks with bread, he used to supply the hospitals, and he used to also supply the Navy. So the naval ships, when they were going out to patrol the North Atlantic, they would come and stock up with bread made by my grandfather and my great-grandfather, should I say, and my great-great-grandfather. So they more or less specialised in bread. They had at one stage the biggest bakery in the west of Ireland. Now, I suppose you got to consider back then there were no highways, there were, you know, little Mm -hmm. roads and borings and bread was delivered by horse and cart, you know, basically horse and cart, bread van type, type of style. So there was no major kind of transport infrastructure. So they also supplied hospitals and poor houses and things like that. Actually, John Griffin Jr. himself was not only a baker and a confectioner, as we spoke about earlier, but he also served his time and was a miller. So he served seven years learning how to become a miller as well. So he was a very uh, well-educated man and very good at what he did. So So, it sounds um, like the the whole entrepreneurial and and educational spirit is not something that has started with you that's been like like 150 years almost in your family it's a long time yeah so so then we move on to my grandfather he was matthew and of course matthew worked for my my granddad in the griffin's bakery where they had the mass production of bread but he had a love of cake so he bought a, a small shop and tea room on shop street and he set up a confectionery bakery there so he would work eight hours for his father and then he'd go up and he would bake for at least another eight or nine hours making bread and cakes for wow. his uh, for his bakery shop. But he would still buy in the bread. So what's really interesting then is I can send you the link and you can put it up at a later date. But there was a book kept. We used to call it a tick book. So you, you got things on tick. You got them on APRO, if you like. Uh-huh. Um, so there was a, a journal kept of all the bread that was bought from the other Griffin's Bakery and sold oh, in the nice. shop. nice. Yeah. And there's a whole record for several years back in the early 1900s of not only the bread sales that went from one bakery to the other, but the journal was kept by my grandaunt, whose name was Polly Hines. And she was an educated woman, too. She was a qualified school teacher. Mm-hmm. And she wrote in beautiful copper plate handwriting. But she started <laughs> writing, you know, a little little gossip column of, you know, what was happening in the town. And, oh, you know, fantastic. It'd be, it'd be kind of passages such as, you know, uh, Mr. Jones was seen going uptown with his best suit on so that kind of generally meant you're either going to court or to see the bank manager you know <laughs> one or the other. Um, so it became a kind of a gossip column and there's a lot of very interesting stuff in there my father's own birth uh, is registered in it and it says today a son and heir was born uh john anthony griffin esquire uh, he's very quiet, so he was obviously quiet when he was born. So that that was an entry in that's one of the That's incredible. That's that's amazing to have. You know, I mean, so that, those, that, have, those have all been scanned into an archive, and they're on the server in the university in Dublin. That was Matthew, my grandfather. I never met him. He died when he was quite young, and then my father, of course, took over the business. Which he was working. Um, from 14 while his dad got sick and then full-time from 16 with his mother. So later on, he got married and himself and my mother then ran the business until the late 1990s. And then I took it over. I ran it for over 15 years. How young were you when you, I'm sure you were in the bakery early from a young age, but like how young were you when you were officially, I guess, an employee of the bakery? Did you start quite young yourself? Well, I would 
say to you, professionally, I went into the trade professionally at the age of 17. Uh-huh, I, went, uh-huh. I went to college in Dublin. So I studied in Dublin Institute of Technology in Kevin Street. And I did three-year diploma there. I was very young in school. But um, when you grow up in a family business and your house at the back of the bakery, yep. uh, from the age of six or seven, you're hauled out to you learn how to make boxes <laughs> oh, yes, and how to yes. scrape but, tins and yeah, clean I mean, the floor. I, I did and, my uh, apprenticeship in Germany. So I, I started when I was 15 going on 16. And of course, the owner's sons were in the bakery helping out too. For some reason, the daughter was spared. I don't know why, but... Um, yeah, uh, that kind of happens. Yeah, the girls were always kind of given the front of house work. They were prettier and they didn't have to do the hard, <laughs> the hard physical work. So we had no girls in our family. It was all boys. So we got all dirty jobs. We got hauled out to do them. <laughs> but yeah. it was good. I think it rounded us all as as people. We were never afraid of work, uh, myself or my other two brothers. So I think it was it was a great benefit to grow up in a family business. I think that is sometimes, I mean, not just growing up in the family business, but starting at a young enough age, like in, you know, 16, 17, 18, to get immersed into the trade and learn the discipline of a day's work and, and you know, respecting each other's time and, and effort and things like that. I think that sometimes, at least here in North America, what sometimes happens is that we see people entering into the trades much later in their life when they're already in their mid-20s or older, and they've developed a lot of bad habits, for lack of a better term, that are more difficult to overcome and, and teach them the new habits, so to speak. I think that you know, we are a dying generation in that sense. The ages keep getting pushed up higher and higher when they go into the trades now. You've also accomplished a lot with your skills besides running your family bakery. You told me you've, you've been a consultant as well, and we'll come back to some of your teaching and things too. But you've got all kinds of awards and accolades and things. I mean, how did you come by all that? I mean, that's that's amazing. I mean, you're a real inspiration to the trade. And can you share with us some of the experiences with that and how you came to do these things? Well, I suppose by nature, I, I've always been a very competitive person. Um, mm-hmm. If you wanted to get something done of the three brothers, I would always be asked because they knew if they asked me, it would be done. (laughs) My father used to say, if you want to get a job done, give it to a busy man. That was Uh his, uh, that was his his attitude. Lady Luck also plays a big factor. Okay. There was my own self-motivation and uh, competitiveness was always there. I suppose there was always a will to achieve. I was very lucky when I was a child. I spent many summers in the Canary Islands as an exchange student, so I learned Spanish. Oh, wow. When I went to school then, I, I had school French, but it was pretty pretty meager, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, but our spoken French was not so good. In, in the 80s, that's exactly kind of what happened. My father was finding it very difficult to get staff. And I was in my high school final year, if you like. And uh, I had aspirations to become an engineer or a pilot or something like that and not get involved in the trade at all. My father just couldn't get staff and he was, you know, coming in. He was working 16, 17 hours a day, six, seven days a week. He was exhausted. And I remember seeing him and I took pity on him and I said, Dad, you know, can I help you? For God's sake, show me how to do something. And he was there putting me off. Ah, no, 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 I don't want to. And I said, look, I'm getting the summer holidays. Show me something. So 
my father taught me how to make laminated pastry. Oh, and so wow. I have him to thank for that. And we didn't even have one of the decent uh, Rondo rollers. It was one of those, you, you pushed the dough into uh, like a, a roller, like one of those old washing machines that uh-huh. uh, mm-hmm. rang out the, mm-hmm. the, the water out of the washing. You just pushed it into a set of rollers on a, an inclined um, steel table. He taught me how to make pastry and he also taught me how to take pride in my work, uh, which I think is a really nice thing. And uh, that certainly inspired me. So I kind of said, well, maybe I will go into into the business. So at short notice, I kind of applied to go to the college in Dublin and I got a place and the rest, I suppose, is history. But uh, the reason I mentioned the languages was... We had to go outside of Ireland to actually get staff. So I contacted a friend of mine, a French guy, and uh, he sent me over a French guy. So we had a French guy in the bakery and then we had a second French guy in the bakery. So I was in the bakery with two French guys upstairs in the confectionery. And as is typical with most French bakers, you know, back in the 80s, not, not so much now. They hadn't a word of English, and of course, they spoke French to each other all day. So mm-hmm. my school French had to take a bit of a dramatic leap in knowledge. But one of the nice things that happened was I started to understand and learn technical French bakery because ah. they would be referring to things like whisks and mixers and mm-hmm. pastry laminators and knives and scrapers and lamination and so on. And these words you would never pick up in ordinary everyday conversation. Yep. So I kind of developed the fundamentals of French bakery language. And mm-hmm. then a couple of years later, I got selected to be the Viennoiserie candidate for the first Irish bakery team. We competed in the European Bakery Cup in Nantes mm-hmm. in, the, in the early 90s. And of course, we went over. We didn't really know what to expect. And back then, there was no such thing as Google Translate. So the, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> <laughs> the instructions and the rules we were given were completely at odds with what we were actually supposed to be doing. Uh And we were to do our work on the final day. The three teams, I think France and Italy and some other country were competing on day one. And all the other teams were brought off for a tour around Nantes and Laboule and places Uh like that. And when we got back in the evening to see the products they had won, our jaws hit the floor and we said, holy (laughs) Jesus, look at this. You know, is this what we're supposed to be doing? I remember I I rang home and I got my brother to go into my office. And at the time, um, it was only fax machines. He had to fax recipes over to the hotel Mm -hmm. I was in. And we changed the format completely. And uh, I think we finished sixth or seventh or something like that. But uh, we didn't disgrace ourselves either. That's an incredible experience. You know, it gave us the will to, okay, let's go back next year and do better. But we learned so much from it. Over a couple of years, I was chosen again, three times actually. And we finished third on the in, on the podium in the late 1990s and we won a bronze so it was the first time Ireland ever won an international Fantastic. Well, yeah, in yeah. at a major championship I later went on then to become the coach of the team I became the bakery coach and uh, one of the things then where the languages came in was there were Spanish teams there were mm-hmm. South American teams in the world championships and of course all these competitions are based in France Yep. So it turned out, oh, well, Jimmy doesn't need an interpreter. He understands. So <laughs> I kind of, uh, the language has opened up more doors for me and uh, I suppose gave me opportunities to witness things and to see things and do things. Yeah. So 
I've been all over the world judging. I've been South America. I've been over to China. I've been all over Europe, into the United States. It's just been fantastic, yeah. Travel broadens our horizons. We get to experience different different cultures and things like that and understand how other people view the art and the skills that, that we work with every day. It gives you, I think, a greater appreciation for everything around us, right? And all of these things that that, that you've done, all the experiences, that's, that's just amazing. I mean, people can read your full biography on Amazon. There's, there's so much. I could fill an hour of us talking here easily. <laughs> <laughs> How we have sort of ended up meeting is I, I stumbled on your Facebook group because, as you mentioned, pastry lamination, that has always been a passion of mine, something that I've always been interested in. I ended up getting hired in a croissant shop where it was growing faster than we could make them. It was one of these situations also where it was a retail thing too, where all of the production was being done in the store window. So we were rolling out and cutting and rolling the croissants right in front of the customers and everything. So I've always enjoyed making uh, croissants and enjoying a good quality croissant. And in Bakerpedia, we've had some discussions about that. And I, I just kind of stumbled upon your Facebook group, uh, which is The Art of Lamination. And its namesake is a book you have published as well, which is very, very thorough and well put together. I've, I've only been able to have a, through Amazon, look at the content so far. Mine's on order, so it'll be here soon. So often these types of books, they cover such general things that they don't really give people the true power and skill to do things all the way from A to Z. And you're covering everything in there. You're you're talking you know, about making the dough, about fermenting the dough, about the different lamination processes, everything. And so it's really, really thoroughly done. And I can only judge the how amazing the photography must be, I mean, because the cover is just stunning. This must have been quite uh, an experience for you. You've written some other books, but this one looks like it was quite elaborate. And, you know, it might seem to some people, well, it's only one subject. And like Bo Freiberg does these massive encyclopedias. But it, again, it doesn't have the detail of how to learn how to make it and understand all the troubleshooting. And so tell me a little bit about that process. What was that experience like writing that book and how long did it take you? It started, there's kind of an interesting background to it. So I told you I work in Technological University in Dublin, mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. was previously called the Dublin Institute of Technology. Basically, in order to keep my job as a lecturer there, the minimum standard of education they will accept is a master's degree. And when I went to university or college, the highest qualification you could get at the time was a diploma. Mm -hmm. Or you could do a London City and Guilds full te technological certificate, which was, you know, another level again. If you didn't have a master's degree, you couldn't really look at long term getting a teaching job in the mm -hmm. university. So my first hurdle was I had to go back and do what they call a process called RPL or recognized prior learning. Mm -hmm. So they looked at everything I had done in the past academically. Um, I had a very good record in terms of competitions I had been involved in and teaching abroad. And, you know, I had lots of skills, but that doesn't cut it in a university. They need the paper wall. Mm -hmm. So I went back and I did a, an honours degree in bakery and pastry arts management. Mm -hmm. And then the year after in 2016, 15 to 2016, I enrolled and I did a master's degree in food product development and culinary so, art. 
And one big part of that was we had a food product development module, which was almost three months. And for that, I decided to, you know, take time out of the business and just give myself time to explore laminated pastry in a way that I never had done before. Mm -hmm. And I actually titled my workbook was actually called The Art of Lamination. Wow. So I, I had the time I was going to university, I was a student, and then I'd come home and I was working in the bakery. So I think I was punching in 80, 90 hours a week. I remember I live in Galway, which is in the West of Ireland, and the university is in Dublin. So it's a three hour, two and a half to three hour bus journey up oh, to wow. Dublin and back again. And I used to travel up and down every day. And what I did was I used the time on the bus and the Wi-Fi to write my assignments and do my research. So, you know, most people sat there listening to music or looking mm -hmm. at movies, whereas I did my research and my writing and my homework. And any photographs I had taken during the day of the process, it was fresh in my head. So There's I that entrepreneurial spirit again. That's amazing. Yeah. I those photos back into my portfolio. So yeah. I never thought of myself as, you know, going to be somebody who would write a book, but I learned so much about lamination and I had a very good template set out on, you know, what I wanted to do. And I applied kind of a teaching methodology. I, I was trying to say to myself, OK, in this book, I need to get it across to a reader who may not be a baker. It might be somebody who's just starting off baking to explain this is what I'm doing and this is why I'm doing it. And explaining the background rather than you just do this, you do that. Mm -hmm. And as I taught in my classes then in the years after, a lot of my students would ask me, Jimmy, how do you know this? <laughs> and is there any book, a reference book where, you know, the way you teach is different to, you know, reading materials we have? So I said, no. So I started preparing handouts for the students and things like that. And the big turning point came for me in terms of COVID-19. We were all locked down. Mm -hmm. So I suppose not unlike half the world's population, the first two weeks was a real novelty. We were all locked down and we weren't allowed to travel uh, mm -hmm. a kilometre out of our home and stuff yep. like that. And everybody just sat at home and watched Netflix and made dinner and had tea and watched more Netflix. Yep. <laughs> Got up in the morning, had breakfast and watched more Netflix. So yeah. my son had come home from Australia. He had only gone out and he was gone for a year had to come home and, of course, he had to spend 14 days cocooning in our house. So uh -huh. we gave him the upstairs part of the house and we were living downstairs. So we had a sofa bed. So we were living on the sofa bed, which was in front of the telly and we were watching Netflix and everything was great for about two weeks. And after the two weeks, I just got so fed up and said, right, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> and I said, OK, look, come next week, Monday, I'm going to get up and I'm going to eat my breakfast and I'm going to be sitting at my desk at nine in the morning, I'm going to start writing. Mm -hmm. And I started writing and I finished off the book in terms of an ebook. I had a huge learning curve in terms of I had to become my own author. I had to become my own publisher. Yeah. I did all my own photography. In fact, all of my photographs wow. are from an iPhone. They're all from my iPhone, believe it or not. Oh, incredible. That's incredible. No, I uh, really can't wait to see this. I suppose that doing the master's degree gave me the skills to to write and to, to place. Now, I mean, I'm not mm -hmm. a professional editor by any means. Um, I've kind of dipped my toe into the water to see where the ripples go. And I never expected the reaction I would get for the book. So it went out as an ebook on the 29th of June in 2020. Yeah. 
And the rest is history. People were asking me, oh, can we get a paperback of that? And then eventually they were looking for a hardcover. So I searched the internet and I did a lot of, I did a lot of self-educational courses, you know, looking at how to become an author, how to run advertising, how to mm-hmm. work with Amazon and, and do all of these things. And all of a sudden the thing just kind of just took off and I was getting people who were asking, you know, could they get autographed copies of my book posted out to them? And I thought, this is crazy. You know, I'm only, I'm only Jimmy Griffin. I'm just a baker. <laughs> oh, fantastic. <laughs> I love it. Book. I love it. It turned out uh, to be amazing. Now, I think it has sold in over 120 countries globally. I did one translation done into Spanish. So up at such time, possibly as I get a, a publisher on board, which I think will happen fairly soon because the, you know, the book sales have been consistent and I think they will continue to be so because the, the Art of Lamination is kind of a real once-off, it's a reference book. Mm-hmm. And it's not a novel that you're going to read and hand over to your friend and say, yeah. here, off you go. It's the thing you're going to have on your shelf and you'll be able to go back into it and say, oh, hang on, I want to look something up and it's there. And that type of knowledge, you know, you don't reinvent the wheel with croissant. Making a croissant, exactly. it's either it's right or it's not. And yeah. you either follow process, procedure, recipe, temperatures, and you get a nice product. And if you deviate at all, you don't. Mm-hmm. It's kind of that simple, really. One of the most general questions I get is, you know, I live in, in for instance, Chile. Can I make French croissant the same as in Paris? And the answer I say is, well, no, because you can't build Rolls Royce using Fiat parts. <laughs> I mean that. I mean that tongue in cheek. But, you know, unless you have the, the French flour, the French butter, it's not going to be exactly a French. It's not going to be exactly the same. It will mm-hmm. get to be similar and you can tweak it. You can, you know, if this flour is very strong, you can weaken it with some pastry flour. Or if it's very weak, you can fortify it with some vital wheat gluten. Mm-hmm. If it's, if the gluten is very tough, you can use a Polish or you can use a sourdough to help get that elasticity into the dough. Yep. There's so many things you can do. Thinking of the croissant lamination and things like that, do you keep your in terms of these baker's percentages? So as bakers, we all know that it's a ratio to the flour and things like that. And then in, in lamination, we often look at the ratio of butter or laminating fat to the dough. Do yes. you keep that pretty much the same? Yes. So, so that if you're doing more layers, you have to increase the amount of fat. Is that correct? No, not, not necessarily. The recipe would remain the same. The recipe would remain the same for croissant. So you're normally talking around 30% lamination butter mm-hmm. yep. in, per dough. So you're looking at 333 grams of, of butter per kilo of per dough. Per kilo, yep. Mm-hmm. And so whether you do 27 or 36 layers, you would keep that about the same. Correct. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Because a lot of people go to this place where they want to make more layers. They say they want to do 36 layers or even above that. Say instead of doing like a 343, they want to do a 443 or something like that. And then they start increasing the butter and then they wonder why they have greasy soggy croissants (laughs) because now you have so much fat in the system and that's why i wanted to get your expertise and you know to voice in on this as well i I do get a lot of queries to get oh can i make a vegan croissant can i make a sourdough croissant can i make this croissant can i make that croissant and will it be the same and if you know of course these are leading questions and the answer is always going to be no. <laughs> it, will make it, similar. it will be similar, but it will not be the same. It will not it be may the look same. like a croissant. It will not taste the same. Yeah. Oh, but can I put in this and can I put in that? Yes, you can. But 
I suppose for me, when I was doing my master's research, one of the things, the interesting things I came across was I compared my particular recipe, which is, you know, flour, water, salt, cheese, butter, Mm -hmm. um, sourdough, milk powder, egg. So all pretty natural products, you know, Mm -hmm. not highly processed. I have a one and a half day, two day shelf life really on a baked croissant is about as much as you can get. Mm And then I came across this croissant that's made in Poland called the Chris Croissant, and it's K-R-I-S. It's a modified atmosphere packaged croissant. It has yeah. a filling, and I think there is 65 ingredients on the on the label. Uh-huh. It's uh-huh. life of over a year. So is it a croissant? Yeah, I'd have to taste one to, to see, but... It wouldn't be what you would expect. I've tasted similar. My my wife saw some and, and they're made in Turkey. Same idea. There's all these ingredients in there to give it shelf life and stuff. And the, the quality is just simply not there. You know, it's a croissant name only. Well, this has been wonderful chatting with you. Let you get back to the rest of your evening or your late afternoon. Thank you so much, Mark. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I look forward to meeting and chatting with you again. Absolutely. And I really appreciate it and look forward to that we get to have a chance to chat again in the future. Thank you very much for joining me on this episode of Baked in Science. Chef Jimmy Griffin is a true master of his craft and a lovely gentleman as well. If you have any questions or suggestions, please drop by our Baking Industry Professionals group on Facebook. Until next time, I'm your host, Mark Florka.